Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we speak to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm hosting a very special episode of On the Marie Curie Couch, released as part of the National Day of Reflection on the 23rd of March, a day for us to come together as a country to reflect on the loss we faced during this past year. In this episode, you'll hear from eight of the guests who've joined me on the Marie Curie couch since the podcast first began in November 2019. We've chosen some of the most memorable moments from the podcast to remind us just how important it is to talk about and reflect on our grief. Our first guest was Adam Buxton, a comedian and fellow podcaster. And as with all our guests, I began by asking Adam to tell us about a significant death he'd experienced in his life. Well, I suppose the main one would be the death of my father, Nigel Buxton, also known as Bad Dad, when he was on our TV show, the TV show I used to do with my friend Joe Cornish. And he was a a part of that. He was like our youth correspondent, even though he was in his 70s. So he was an important figure in my life for all sorts of reasons. He was my dad, but then he kind of reinvented himself as this uh, person who was helping me out professionally with the TV show, and then that kind of reinvigorated our our relationship. And then, and then I didn't see him for a long time. Like his last sort of fifteen years, he kind of took himself off. He and my mum had split up. He was living out in Sussex uh, in a little house near the Downs where he used to go walking. And then he was quite old when he was diagnosed. He must have been about 90, I suppose, when he was diagnosed with cancer. And it quickly became clear that it was not really treatable. And so the decision was made that he would come and live with us. When I say us, me, my wife and my children and my dog, beautiful dog out in uh, Norfolk, in the countryside where we live. We're lucky to have a house that's big enough for us to, you know, have room to put up my dad. So he lived with us uh, for what turned out to be the last nine months of his life. And um, so, yeah, he died in November 2015, the very end of November. He didn't get to see Brexit and Trump get in, which I'm happy about. Well, I don't know. He might have liked Trump. <laughs> Could we just go back a bit, Adam, yeah. and, and back to the time your dad moved out of his house yes. and moved in with you mm. and your family? Um, what, what, what was that like, the, the, the move and those kind of initial few weeks? Uh, it was stressful. I don't think I'd ever considered the idea that he would actually come and live with us. He'd always joked about it. When he would come and visit... He would say, oh, you've got all this space out here. You're so lucky. Maybe I'll come and live uh, out here sometime when I'm a bit older. Yeah, 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 whatever. 
I could, you could turn that uh, shed over there into a very nice flat. That'd be good for me. Sure, yeah. And then when he actually got ill, I thought, oh, actually, maybe that would be a good idea. I mean, I checked what his prognosis was, obviously. If they were giving him 10 years, there was no way I would have moved him in. I'm joking. But, I mean, <laughs> there was an element of that. Mm. It was so. It was so sudden, they suddenly said... My sister called up and said, we've just been to the dock and they're talking about between, might be a year, might be three months. So it's like, whoa, okay, emergency, let's get him in. So I did have a conversation with my wife, although she will possibly dispute that. Uh, this is the thing, if anyone listening has ever been in this situation and you, you have uh, looked after a, a parent or a loved one, I mean... There's all sorts of repercussions and bits of shrapnel that go off in your life and your routines and your relationships are tested in ways that you never really considered and that was certainly the case with us. But, um, yeah, it was massively disruptive, but I was looking forward to it. I felt sort of good to get the opportunity to be a more dutiful son, you know? Mm. I think I felt guilty for not having seen him more than I had which wasn't really my fault because he wasn't too, you know, we'd invite him over and stuff, but he was quite happy keeping himself to himself. Mm. And so when he got ill and he moved in, I said, all right, Dad, look, let's get you over. We're going we're gonna to fix up the little guest area and um, you can move all your stuff in. We can store it in the sheds and this is going to be good. I imagined that it was going to be the beginning of a, a, a kind of um, very cathartic mm. bonding session tie up a load of a lifetime of loose ends ask him a load of questions that I'd never had the opportunity to ask before because he was quite a I mean he was 91 when he died you know he was from a very different generation mm. very kind of formal conservative in every sense of the word uh, pretty uptight not a big one for talking about his feelings at all so I thought that the fact that we were looking after him and he was vulnerable, I thought maybe that would encourage him to be a bit more open and and we'd uh, make a more meaningful connection than we ever had. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, it was just all the bullshit that comes with making all the arrangements that have to be made, you know, getting everything straight with the district nurses and the local GP and doing all that admin, you know, and uh, going to the local dock and finding out, getting all these bits and pieces of nutritional supplements that he now needs to take and all this kind of stuff. And that suddenly becomes the routine. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was, it was not what I expected at all. And he wasn't really up for... There was an, ini there was an initial couple of weeks after he moved in that was that was now I can see the honeymoon period when he was very grateful and very emotional about being with us you know he was scared and he was really happy that he was with us he'd always loved the place that we live you know mm -hmm. and um, always loved my family and even Rosie the dog he was never a dog person, but he made an exception for Rosie. So initially it looked really like it was going to be great. But then the routine sets in and real life kicks in and 
you've got your own responsibilities as well. You know, you have to carry on working and taking the children to school and putting out the bins and all that stuff. Really honest words from Adam there about the challenges of caring for a parent who has a terminal illness. Having conversations with loved ones about death and dying can, of course, be difficult. But for those who do manage to speak about it, it can be very helpful. I spoke to singer, actress and writer Beverly Knight about her best friend Tyrone and the sort of conversations they were able to have prior to his death. We talked about it a lot because um, we had to face certain realities. I mean, it's it's going to come to all of us, but in Tyrone's case, the possibility of it being much nearer um, was, you know, obvious due to the nature of what, what was wrong with him. And um, so uh, we actually talked about things like the funeral. Um, not so much the quote, boring bits, you know, the, the the paperwork and things like that. That we didn't really go into so much. I wish we had. Um, that's a whole other story. Um, but we talked about the day he would like, you know, the kind of funeral he would like. And um, the first thing he said was, well, you've got to sing. And I was like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> you expect me to stand there? And be together enough to sing, okay then, well, we'll see. You won't see, but we'll see, you know. Um, and and I did. God knows how, but I did. Um, and we talked uh, about, uh, you know, details, flowers, you know, um, who's going to be a pallbearer, um, what kind of a... a, a after, you know, wake, whatever yeah. they call it, um, he was going to have. And those kinds of things, those are the things that because he could have a measure of control over it, he wanted to tell me, you know, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. You know, yeah. he didn't want it to be too maudlin. I said, well, look, you know, you're a larger than life personality. People are going to miss you. <laughs> I'm going to miss you, you know. Um it won't necessarily be maudlin, but there will be sadness. You know, you can't eradicate that. And he was like, yes, well, I want it to be fabulous. And, you know, that's how he was. He was just so gregarious and larger than life. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And actually, what a great, you know, I think that focusing on focusing on that stuff. Yeah. The kind of colourful stuff. Yeah, and it was colourful, yeah. Is that, um, that's the bit that's going to be, be sort of representing him, isn't it? You know, it's going to be part of him and who he was. Exactly, exactly. To kind of celebrate and remember. That was the side that mattered most because the other stuff... The, you know, um, who is the executor of a will and, yeah. you know, and... Equally as important. Equally as important, but, but my God, drier than the Sahara. So, yeah. of course, I had to deal with all of those things. Um, he had family, but um, he was a big gay character and um, his HIV status was not something that he talked about at all. I only found out really about it by accident because I couldn't get hold of him and, in, and then found him in, in the Chelsea Westminster Hospital. And I looked around the ward and the posters talking about CD4 and, you know, uh, cell, white blood cell counts and all of this. And I was like, oh, ah, 
okay then. Um, nothing changed between us. I just had more knowledge. And with mm. knowledge is, is, is power. So, um, But his family, it was difficult for them to understand his sexuality. Um, conservative Jamaican background, such as myself as well. Um, yeah, that comes with a whole set of problems. On top of that, the stigma of HIV, it was difficult. So... Mm. Um, his family uh, were around at the very end. That's when they kind of were back in his life and, um, you know, that was great comfort to him. But getting back to what we were saying, um, I was the person who was the executor of the will, so I had his passport, I had... I had the, the not-so-fun job of having to inform, you know, council... You know, Mr. Tyrone Jameson is no longer with us and death certificates. And, who, and Did anyone advise you about kind of what to do or did you just figure it out? I, you know, about having a will or contacting well, the council? Tyrone, when, when they talk about executor of will, it's a, it's a title, it's a phrase, it's a phrase that is chucked around, but Tyrone was 31. He didn't have a will. He was, he was even though he knew that... Um, his and HIV back then, you know, different antiretroviral drugs. It wasn't like we have it now. Mm. Thank God things are so much better. But back then it was tough for him, um, even though he knew um, the day of his um, mortality was coming. It just, you know, you, you, he just hadn't, hadn't planned that side. So when it did come... I'm lucky because um, uh, Tyrone was practically adopted into my family. You know, we just had him. <laughs> like, he's yeah. an extra brother, you know. Uh, so my family were absolutely brilliant um, and helped me to do everything. You know, get all his affairs sorted out and um, get everything in order. Um, I was not in a good place. Mm. I was a absolute mess mm. but my my family were were just rock solid and you know everybody uh pulled together and really helped well we helped each other through it because we all were feeling the loss keenly but um in terms of the practicalities the family really helped me through because I, I had no clue yeah. not a clue i knew you needed a death certificate but i didn't know any of the steps, any of it. I, yeah. I just, I was entirely clueless. Thanks to Beverly for sharing what was clearly such a difficult time. Back in 2019, I spoke to Oscar-winning filmmaker Dustin Lance Black about his mum and his experience of bereavement. I asked him the advice he'd give to someone who's grieving. A lot of people ask me advice as they start to lose loved ones nowadays, I get, and, and these are friends and, but also just strangers who have read Mama's Boy and kind of know, you know, what, what I've experienced. And, and I say, never underestimate the tremendous power, and it may be the most powerful thing a human being can do, which is to be there. I don't care what you say. In fact, saying nothing can be quite powerful. Hmm. Be there. Uh, be there next to the person who is dying. Be there. 
If you can hold their hand, if that's fine by you and them, wonderful. If you can sing to them, terrific. Uh, if you can get them drunk on Crown Royal and play punk rock music like I did for my brother in the minutes he was dying, fan-fucking-tastic. Uh, but be there. And then when you're with people who are in grief and mourning uh, and you don't know what to say or to do, be there. Oh, the power of bringing someone a warm tea <laughs> when they're in grief. So many people describe how, you know, we'll have people talking about neighbours crossing the road because they don't know what to say. Mm. Or family members not making contact with people because they don't know what to say. Friends even as well. So these sort of separations happen at this yeah. time when, as you're describing, what's most important is that you're just there. You don't need to say anything. Sometimes practical things can help as well. You know, can Absolutely. you do some shopping? Can you go and get some milk and some bread? Oatmeal cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Give, put me on the sugar train uh, in, in grief. Um, Lance, what's, what's helped you? Um, uh, I don't know. I still wake up all of the time uh, wondering where my world has gone mm. and not recognizing the world around me. And I could not be more fortunate um, to have this new life in this new country with a wonderful husband and now a 14-month-old son. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm rebuilding. And But I, I, I'd be lying if I said I don't I often wake up and I don't recognize where I am. Um, and I, I think some of that, uh, w you know, will continue to get sorted out. I, I, I think um, what's helped me in some ways is the reconnection with my mother's family. I challenged myself on the other side of my mom passing away. I... I said to myself, if uh, my mother had in her life shown the courage to come to L.A. and and meet my gay friends and to see if she couldn't build a, a very unexpected bridge, mm -hmm. um, shouldn't I show courage to, to go the other direction and to go back to Texarkana, to Texas, to Louisiana, and to reconnect with my family there? But... Could we connect? Is there a higher plane than politics? Are these relationships, these familial and community relationships, worth fighting for? That was what my mother left me with. And so I did go back and I have reconnected with my family. Um, you know, I, I, and we don't agree on everything. You know, we're edging towards acceptance of each other. Um, and so, you know, that, that gives me some strength. That helps. Yeah, there's something very powerful in that, I think, isn't there? That link, even if you're not getting along. But, you know, I mean, I, I, you, you talked about how neighbors and friends and co-workers will cross the street. And, and, you know, some literally do and others do it in other ways. Others you just don't hear from for a while. And it, it is, it, I don't want to make it seem like this is easy. And one of the things that's very much not easy about it is that, it draws into question for you and probably everyone around you and who knew your loved one or knew what they meant to you, their own mortality. Hmm. 
And for some people, that's very scary. They don't want to get too close to death because then they have to admit to themselves that they're not immortal, that we're all dying. And so it forces us to face and accept something that's very difficult for many, if not most people, about this beautiful thing called life and existence, um, which is how ephemeral it is, hmm. how much we are all whispers. I found Lance's words really powerful and put so eloquently. Also in 2019, I spoke to Blue Peter legend and author Janet Ellis, who at the time was trying to make sense of her husband John's terminal cancer diagnosis. As part of our conversation, I also asked Janet her thoughts on whether legacy was important to her. It's a, well, it's a funny one, that, isn't it? Because I, I suppose in some ways I've got the opportunity for something solid left behind, you know, two, two books, some old bits of tape. But that really isn't isn't about how I think of myself mm. and it isn't no I, I don't know I, I certainly don't think it's about solid chunky legacy or things I have done but I I'd like I'd like people to just think that I I did it okay really looked after people okay was mostly kind where I should have been picked up litter I'd like to be remembered for that because I'm really keen on that and that I didn't take it too seriously, but on the other hand, I am, like I said, overwhelmed by what people are capable of. But I'm still super aware of how fragile all this is, how unpredictable. And I try and get a sense of something like joy from it when you get past the anger and the grief that there is still an amazing sunset somewhere. I don't mean to sound like a Clinton's card here, but but I think I have to think like that now because otherwise the temptation to just hide away initially was so great that I would not have been able to have anything like this conversation because I was paralysed by a kind of anger which had no end point. Couldn't even be angry at anything. Mm. <laughs> Wasn't even there. Mm. <laughs> Couldn't focus. Couldn't have a row back. I mean, John John doesn't have rows with me. I have rows at him sometimes, but he's really bad at the other page of script. And with this one, it was even worse because it really, there was nothing. Talk mm. about howling into the absolute ether. Nothing back. Just before we finish, is there any um, maybe practical tips or advice you might give to somebody listening who is maybe going through something similar to you and John or is maybe grieving? You're not on your own. You really are not on your own. And there will be somebody there who understands in the way that you want them to. Marie Curie obviously is, is an amazing place for people to explore how they might feel about dealing with it. I think sometimes grieving is like being in a room that you think is sealed and actually... You can't see it. It's built into the wall, but there is a handle and there is a room next door and beyond that, somewhere else that you might find more comfortable. It isn't a, a time-limited process. I always think that's really important for people that grief can catch you unawares years and years later and equally it can leave you for a moment when you think you might feel it most. And all of that, I think, is fine. But there will be somebody to support you Somebody unlikely, 
And I think one of the things that's revealed with what's happened with John is that some people that unexpectedly have been extraordinary about helping us deal with this. And we do need help. For all our, we don't want to tell anyone, we do need help. And John's found that an amazing thing, that some people are just sensitive in a way we didn't expect or empathetic in a way we couldn't have predicted. But I think, personally, I would say, please don't be alone with this, because in that room there is nothing except you trying to find the door or hunkered in the middle of it, doubting you'll ever leave. But someone on the other side of it is knocking faintly. Listen, listen hard, you'll find them. Walk towards the sound. Sadly, Janet's husband John died in July 2020. Our thoughts are with Janet and her family and we're grateful to her for sharing their story so openly. The Great Daffodil Appeal means even more to us in 2021 than previous years. Marie Curie nurses have been on the front line of the pandemic, providing vital care. At the same time, we've been unable to fundraise as normal. Please donate what you can. Your support would mean the world to dying people and their loved ones. Visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash daffodil. Through our work at Marie Curie, we know that every person's experience of grief is unique. However, people tell us they find it really helpful to hear the experiences of others and that in turn can help them process their own feelings and also know that they're not alone when it comes to grieving. In March last year, I spoke to the wonderful actress Jane Horrocks who talked about the death of her father and the pain of feeling orphaned even though her mum was still alive. I think the most significant bereavement was my dad, who died eight years ago. And um, I I didn't think I was that close to my dad. But when he died, um, it was such a, a profound moment for me that um, it's kind of undescribable and, and very difficult to prepare for losing a parent. And um, I think that that was... Uh, yeah, quite shocking to me, actually, how um, devastated I was by losing my dad when I thought I was kind of all right, you know, about him going. But when it happened, it was, yeah, it was profound. So the thought of it beforehand, you thought, well, I'm going to be able to manage this and I feel OK about it. Um, but then when it happened, it was a different story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My mum, who's got Alzheimer's um, and is in a nursing home and um, doesn't really know who I am, is, um, I don't know how long she's going to last. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know how long my dad was going to last. He ended up in a nursing home as well with uh, Parkinson's and dementia. Doesn't bode well for me, does it? <laughs> but, uh, 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 it's funny because I feel like I've already lost my mum with through Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I I kind of feel the same way about my mum um, that I think I I'm going to be able to cope with it because I already feel like I've lost her anyway, but I know that that's probably not going to be the reality, and um, and there is a certain dread 
when that day comes when I am going to lose my mum and that profound effect happens again, which is so out of your control. And, um, yeah, kind of um, otherworldly. Mm. Some of those losses that come with dementia, which I've heard people talk about before, can you talk a bit about that, you know, a bit about what that is like for your mum and for you? Well, um, I think because my, my dad um, had Parkinson's and then and then got dementia and he didn't last very long with the dementia. Um, and I don't... And I think I've been living longer with my mum and dementia right. um, than I was with my dad. So I think it's really kind of... Um, I've absorbed it a lot more with my mum than I did with my dad. And uh, and it was much more of a gradual process with my mum as well, whereas it seemed to be very rapid with my dad. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, it's very strange. I often refer to my mum in the past that she's not alive anymore. So that's a very strange thing. Um, people correct me and say, hang on a minute, I, I didn't realise your, your mum had died. And I go, oh, no, no, she's not. No, gosh, yes, I don't know why I'm speaking of her in the past tense. But, I, yeah, I mean, it's looking back at videos, I'm in the process of making a little art film about my mum with old footage that I've got of her. And, uh, and to think that that person isn't with me anymore mm. is, you know, is... Pretty awful. I kind of have to put up a really strong barrier to deal with it. Um, I'm 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 in the process of moving house as well, and lots of things have changed recently in my life that I've kind of thrown everything up in the air um, to see how things land. And I I think it is a direct result of my mum having Alzheimer's. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because. The loss of somebody so important in my life mm-hmm. is, well, you know, sod it. Why not? Why not just actually take massive risks now? Because that rock that was in my life is no longer there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, but I'm wondering if there's something about both parents as well. So your mum's the second person to go. She's not gone. She Mm. hasn't died. Mm. She hasn't physically died. But you've lost the mum you remembered, like you were just Mm. telling us about, Mm. the mum in the video clips. I wonder, I don't know whether there's a link between having both parents and then having none. Um, in yes. that chucking everything up in the air yes, thing. Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, I, I'm in effect, I've been orphaned, yeah. So even though my mum is still alive, I do feel like I, yeah, I am quite, a, quite an orphan now. Such powerful, honest words from Jane. Next, we hear from another great British actor, Hugh Grant, about his much-missed mum, Finvola. I asked Hugh what had helped him in the days following his mum's death. Well, I'm not sure. It's a, I, it's a very strange thing, grief, because in my experience anyway, it hits you at the oddest and most embarrassing times and doesn't hit you at other times when you think it might. Um, for me, it was the, the certain triggers were uh, pieces of music because she always played the piano and uh, particularly when she was tired and she played one of her sort of a couple of her standard pieces were bits from a ridiculous old 1950s musical called Salad Days 
which was her first date with my father in the in the fifties, and uh, and these were the pieces of music that I made the organist <laughs> play, and they're very jolly, upbeat um, pieces of music, which was quite odd for as the coffin's being carried out of the church, but that was the bit that set everyone off, including me. That was the saddest. Um, and those pieces of music still have that power now to make me feel quite sad. Um, and then other weird things, you know, just going about in your normal life, chatting about something. My mother had a very strange relationship with our cat. And uh, sometimes my dad still talks to this cat, even though the cat's been dead for many years as well. Th that can sometimes set me off. Or, or I, yeah, or I think how sad it is that my mum never met my kids. You know, that's sad. Hmm. Hmm. And what helps you? What has helped you at those times? Um, I, I just think... Do you talk about it? No, not well, yeah, a bit with my brother and things like that. But I wouldn't say we sort of talk about it too much. It's mainly, uh, it's mainly just keeping, you know, she, as I keep saying, she had a great sense of humour. And so it's keeping a sort of sense of humour about the whole thing and... You know, it's just, it's incredibly bad luck. You get cancer, you die. Hmm. I was just thinking about that, you know, because some people do talk about it. Some people do talk about their grief and find that very helpful. Some people can talk about it endlessly. And Well, I it's odd. Some people are completely uh, polaxed by it. I, you know, I have a German friend who, his mum died, and really, you know, for 10 years he couldn't think or talk about anything else. Hmm. It's quite odd. I think it's different, you know, different people react in different ways. You know, what we know in our work is depending on our relationship with the person, then sometimes our experiences and our grief can be different. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you they just mentioned your brother, and we know sometimes even in the same family, you know, people will have different mm -hmm. relationships, even with parents. Yeah. So therefore, they'll have a different experience of bereavement yeah. and grief doesn't mean they can't support each other of course yeah. but we'll just have a different experience yeah I think his has been fairly similar to mine but the person you know we're really watching out for all the time is my dad hmm. uh, left on his own and uh, yeah trying to make it all make sure he's okay uh, and you know he's old school sort of ex-army officer so I think, you know, naked exhibitions of grief quite unlikely to come from him. Mm. But I do remember uh, the moment my mum's body was taken out of the house. Dad said, I don't, I don't want to see this bit. And he just watched from a window inside. And I, that was, I remember thinking that was interesting. That he, you know, he didn't want to deal with that, with that particular bit. And then I think, it's coming back to me now, one of the things that gets one through those first weeks after death is... Um, practicalities organizing a funeral it's quite helpful it fills your days uh thinking about you know mundane things like what volivants should we have at the reception uh so i think that helped a bit what you highlighted there was how helpful some of the traditional rituals around funerals can be and that's something that many people have had taken away from them during this past year making it even harder than ever to grieve. Please do listen out later in the podcast for our support line details if that's something that's affected you. In July 2020, I spoke to MP David Lammy. 
as so much of our life moved online, my chat with David was via video call. He opened up to me about losing his mum. I think, you know, the thing is, we were a very spiritual family and my mother was a very spiritual woman. And, you know, I remember the last time I was with her where she was fully conscious in the hospice. And I said to her, mum, look, I've been meaning, I wanted to just tape you talking about your upbringing in, in, in Guyana and about your mother and how you started and what, because we don't talk enough about, about that. And I, you know, I, I think I'm going to write a book down the line and I, and I really want to get this down. And she talked and she talked. I was so pleased to have captured that conversation, which I did subsequently put into my first book. Um, I captured the conversation for which I was very grateful. And I remember she then, I, then I said, oh, look, I've got to leave now. And it must have been about 7, 7.30. And she said, will you just help me to the loo? And I, and I helped her to the loo um, and then helped her back to her bed. And she said, oh, you know, darling, I, I was looking at the, um, you know, the, the carpet or something. And she said, I'm seeing, I'm seeing double. I think I'm traveling, she called it. And traveling is a, is a, is a it's used very much in um, West Indian African cultures. It's the idea that you're sort of moving towards your ancestors. And she became very emotional. She started to sort of cry. Started and, and she started to laugh and she was very peculiar but what was clear to me was that my conversation with her had prompted something pushed her somewhere clearly she started to think about her mother and that she was close to seeing her mother and it made her first sort of tears roll down her eyes but then a sort of laughter and i have to tell you <laughs> If I am in that point, I will be. I will be dying at some point, and if someone brings my, I'll be the same. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, and she said to me, "My mother's sense of humour." She said to me, "Is this what is this what they say LSD feels like?" <laughs> <laughs> is this what they call tripping? She said, <laughs> in a sort of cheeky, cheeky, uh, cheeky way. Anyway, I, I sort of, I, you know, I kissed her goodbye and I left her. And then I remember getting a call um, early in the morning, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning from the hospital saying, look, you've got to come now. She's, you know, taken a turn for the worst. And um, she's definitely into the last stages around up the family and, and you need to come down here. When we got to the hospice, by the way, by this point, it was myself, my brother, sister, aunts and uncles were beginning to gather you know she did sort of slip into a I suppose it's like a sort of semi-comatose situation as as the as the breathing starts to slow but and it went on for a good three days or so actually and there was one point where it was only 24 hours before she died that a particular aunt came to visit and as I say my mother was in a sort of sober measured Anglo-Catholic place in terms of her faith and this particular aunt that came was in an evangelical um almost theatrical place in terms of grief and she started to sort of holler and scream and and carry on when she saw my mother in lying there in in her bed she was in a, a, a coma by this point and and even then because 
my aunt was being so theatrical in displaying her grief. My mother sort of woke momentarily from her coma and said, um, darling, please don't embarrass me. It's, <laughs> it's such a lovely hospital. Please, please lower your tone. Slip <laughs> back into this. Slip back into this, this coma and die 24 hours later. So she she was she was absolutely the other thing she said, and this is I've seen this also in, in grief over the years with relatives that have died, is is of course she was very grateful that as she put it, she was dying from the bottom up. So it's also taking those moments to give thanks. So not only did I find with the cancer that we had these two years and it was we were spent a lot of time together, very tight, very special. But also my mother reminded us that she was dying. She said, look, you either died from the head down or the feet up, and I'm dying from the feet up, which means that I'm still here right to the end. It's only when you've been with loved ones, you know, with, 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 with either Alzheimer's or, or some cancers where you haven't been able to connect with them in quite that way that you realize how special it is, even though you're losing someone that they're there with you right up until the last. And even as she took her last breath and we were all around her, um, you know, she was, she, was, she was in the room, she was with us, um, she was wishing us well, she was, she was at peace. What was your mum's name, David? Rose! Rose. <laughs> Instead of name. And actually just saying her name makes me well up. Because I haven't said her name in a long, long time. Um, her name was Rosalind, but she was called Rose by her friends and Mary by her family as a sort of family name. It's so lovely to hear the joy it brings David to say his mum's name out loud. Saying their names and remembering stories about someone who's died can be so important to us. Finally, for this special episode, at the end of last year, I spoke to the wonderful pottery designer, Emma Bridgewater. As with all our podcast guests, I asked Emma how she would like to be remembered. I don't think it's up to me. I really don't. And I'm, I'm bothered by people curating their legacy. Uh, you know, I, I think it leads to HS2. <laughs> I think the idea that you should... Um, I don't know, try and control what you're remembered as and for. It's desperate, really, really desperate. Um, and I also, I feel sorry when people start a charity. I can see how that work and memorialising can be really, really good. But for me, I think you've got to be careful about the levels of distraction that you give yourself. And I would definitely encourage people to donate, perfectly speaking, to Marie Curie. You know, so often your best help in those de desperate dog days. You know, so I think sometimes people cut themselves an enormous great um, task to distract from grief, whereas it might be better to sit with the grief and to encourage I mean, to raise money for an existing charity. I'm not quite sure why I feel that, but I, I know I do. I, I suppose it's actually, it is slightly anti the legacy idea. I think sinking down into the turf is what you, do then, I mean, whether you're buried or cremated or whatever. I don't think I don't think you matter when you're gone. And I, I think, well, my grandmother had this thing that she didn't want a gravestone because she felt they were melancholy, and the churchyard here were very keen that 
people would know where her grave was. And so the compromise I came up with was a flat stone, sort of, you know, proud from the ground. And I thought for as long as perhaps, you know, my daughters and their children or whatever are visiting, they can sort of scrape, the, the grass will start to grow over it. They can scrape it back. And then when it's forgotten, when she hasn't got any visitors, it can quietly sink down. And that, I, I feel that straining for immortality means nothing to me. But then I'm the person who's put my name on a lot of cups. So which, some of which, as we know, you know pottery shards might last a long time. So perhaps I'm talking complete nonsense, but I, the idea of trying to guide what people think about me after I'm dead, I've, I really don't know. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that, how long pottery lasts, the little shards. <laughs> yeah, it's a thought, isn't it? So there you go, I'll, I'll be remembered as a fragment of spotty pottery. <laughs> um, just before we finish off, Emma, um, can I ask what, what it's meant for you to be able to share your story with Marie Curie today? Well, I was, it's a privilege to have been asked. And uh, exactly like you, I feel keen to encourage people to talk with their friends, with their family, about their feelings about death, whether it's the death of, of somebody precious who's just died or what might happen after one's own death. I think talk about it, folks. We should all be able to talk more readily about death, bereavement, terminal illness. Otherwise, suddenly in the great sort of sadness and trauma of someone's death, you've got to learn the vocabulary all in, all in a rush. And, if there is a barrier, if you do feel shy about it, work to break it down. Better to start processing, it's better to start thinking and let what can happen. You know, I think, I think through talking about it, through processing grief, it's possible to find the, well, if I think of my daughter and I walking along the Thames, she's still so sad about a, a, a death five years before. Whereas more recent, you know, my sister's more recent death I felt I could feel myself processing because of having that imaging. So you want to get from the deep, deep, dark misery to some kind of joyful connection with what that person really was. So the loss starts to just meld into the joy of that life because it's so awful to live sad. And I think talking about grief can help convert that, that heart-rending trouble and sadness into a gentle kind of real real available joy about the person instead and achieving that for my aunt and my mom and I mean I'm still working on it with my sister it's very raw but it feels so worthwhile beautiful words from Emma there about just how important it is to talk openly about death Thank you to all of the amazing guests who've joined me on the Marie Curie couch since we started making the podcast. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, then don't forget that all of our episodes can be found in full on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do subscribe as we've got lots more conversations coming soon. So that's all for this special episode of On the Marie Curie Couch marking the National Day of Reflection. If you know someone who's been bereaved this year, why not reach out to them to let them know you're thinking of them today? Marie Curie's here to help all year round. 
from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.